Blog Talk Radio. Network. Western Pennsylvania is the battleground between a strip miner, activists, citizens trying to save their homes, and in the middle is Mike Jacobs, a young lawyer working for the DEP. Joel Burkett brings to life these and other characters in Amid Rage, his latest novel, and Joel makes his second appearance on our program today. Welcome back, Joel. Thank you very much, Tori. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, the first thing that we get, and you always have to start a book with something active. You give us action, and you don't pull any punches. Tell us a little bit about what a mid-rage is about, and I know I gave you a bit of an intro, but give us it from your own words. Sure. I mean, I, re- I really wanted to uh, write a novel about a battle over environmental degradation, fury against the government, loyalty, and love. And uh, this book is about all of those things and more. Ostensibly, it's a story about a strip mine permit battle uh, over coal mining. Um, But it gets into all of those issues and uh, really touches on um, some really uh, key issues of the day. And overarching all of this, of course, is the question of climate change, uh, because uh, the battle is over a coal mining permit. And uh, so that, that we, we have during the story, course of the story uh, discussions by the various characters regarding um, how significant coal is in the 21st century. So it's about a lot of different things. That's for sure. And it reads a little bit more of a pulp novel by the action, but also the behavior on the characters. Did you enter into it with the plan? And and also, how long did you have this little concept in your mind? Because sometimes those goes back a number of years. I had the concept in mind for a very long time. I knew I wanted to write a a novel about uh, strip mining. And, you know, it's interesting. uh, There's a a balance that I have to uh, strike in my books. And on the one hand, I want to write something that people are going to find exciting and that they're going to want to read all the way through and that they're going to have a hard time putting down. And on the other hand, uh, what I'm trying to do is to educate people. So in this novel in particular, and in my new novel coming out in February called Strange Fire, uh, in in that novel as well, I try to educate people as much as I can about the issue that's being discussed. So um, the novel becomes kind of a vehicle for uh, educating people, and, and I want to do it in the most um, pleasant way that I possibly can. So if I were to write a textbook, and I've written two textbooks, but if I wanted to write a textbook you know, where you had to take toothpicks to prop your eyes open, I could certainly do that, but that's not going to educate a large group of people. On the other hand, if I write something that is exciting and that um, 
know, people are, you know, can't wait to turn the page, you know, page turners, that kind of thing. If I, if I write it like that, uh, people are much more likely to learn as they uh, read through the book. So it's, it's a balance. It's, it really is a balance. Yeah, and that's the thing. When you consider that you know coal fueled this country very largely for a number of years in our American history, and yet we see the climate damage it can cause, and then the the jump to different different you know to natural gas and hopefully to wind and solar one of these days. I definitely want to ask you a little bit about the technical aspects. Um, one of the things, as I say, you you put us right in the middle of the action. And at the center, as I said, is this fellow Mike. Tell us about our protagonist, you know, sort of the young environmental lawyer who's out to do good, but there's so much more to his character than that. Mike is a complicated character. He's um, 28 years old. He's already been a, a, um, an assistant counsel with the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, DEP, He's been doing that for three years, which means that he's a, basically an environmental prosecutor uh, for the government. He's, in, in a way, I tried to make him an everyman. You know, you can read a, uh, a Jack Reacher novel and say to yourself, wow, Jack Reacher, he's six foot five. You know, he's a former you know, military policeman. You know, he's uh, really strong as anything, and he has all of these talents and these hidden talents. And you can read stories about with other characters in them, and they all seem to have a superpower. You know, you know, another character, you know, has a um, photographic memory, and you know, this other character is a, you know, got six uh, uh, black belts in karate. And I didn't want to make Mike that guy. I wanted to make Mike all of us. I wanted anyone who was reading this story to relate to Mike and to say, okay. I, I could do that. I really could do that. And I wanted people to um, have that sense of Mike. Uh, at the same time, uh, Mike has got a lot of issues. Um, his father died when he was young. His mother died just a couple years earlier. And actually, she dies in the first book in the series called Drink to Every Beast. And um, and he's got uh, women issues. You know, he's he's got a messy social life. It's you know, his social life is, is <laughs> I tried to make as, as complicated and messy as possible in these stories. And, um, and he's got all of that. And at the same time, take a look at somebody who is 28 years old. And uh, I'm, I'm a few years separated from that. Um, and you say to yourself, wow, you know, the, these young people have tremendous responsibility. And are they ready for it? And at times, Mike is super ready for it and at other times you say to yourself he might not be ready for it and uh, yet he has a load of responsibility so he's he's a guy who has all of this stuff going on plus the fact that he has a very strong uh, environmental ethic and it's very important to him to uh, do the right thing but he's his employer the commonwealth of pennsylvania department of environmental protection his employer uh, while it may share some aspects of his ethic, he has to do things like defending permits. And in a way, one of the things that he's doing in this uh, in this book is that he has to defend a permit that was issued by DEP. And so he's really stuck in the middle. On the one hand, uh, because of the way this case is set up, which, by the way, is realistic, uh, the way it's set up is a permit is issued by DEP uh, for strip mining a rel- relatively small property in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, and the permit 
uh, operator, the, the mine operator, doesn't like all of the terms and conditions in the permit. So he files an appeal from the issuance of the permit because he doesn't want the permit conditions in there. On the other hand, the neighbors uh, are furious that there's a permit that's been issued to mine literally in their front yards. And so Mike really finds himself in the middle between these two warring factions. And it's pretty clear where his sentiments lie. Mike's sentiments lie uh, with the citizens, with the, um, the anti-mining people. But he's got a responsibility. He's got a job, and his job is to, um, is to represent the Commonwealth, which is really stuck in the middle. So um, he's, he's a complicated guy. He has um, personal issues. He has uh, a, a lack of experience. He's only been an environmental lawyer for three years in this story. And he's, um, you know, he's, uh, he's challenged uh, when, when it comes to those um, uh, professional issues and is also challenged from time to time in his personal issues. And in this story, we see a, a particular challenge that he has. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is, um, yeah, I'm, I'm basically twice the man's age, and I remember my life at 28. And it's one of the things that happens when you're creating characters, you draw on the people you know, but you also draw on yourself. How much of Mike is you? Is there a percentage of you in there, do you think? Yes, absolutely. And um, the fact of the matter is that um, while I'm not Mike and Mike isn't me, uh, and I want to be clear about that, at the same time, you know, I've drawn on my experiences. When I went to work for the predecessor to DEP called the Department of Environmental Resources, I was 25 years old. And at the time, I felt very grown up, and I, I, felt, uh, I felt as though I was ready to do my job, and obviously the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania felt that I was ready to do that job. Um, and in a, in a real way, when they sent me out west to places like uh, Somerset County and other counties out west to uh, handle strip mining cases, I felt like a, a young gunslinger. You know, they, they just handed me a tin badge and said, go out there and, and – uh, and see what you can do to uh, bring some law and order uh, to the, you know, to this to this mining world. And when I look back, and I and I know people now who are 25, 26, 27, 28, they can be very, very mature, very, very prepared. But on the other hand, they're young, and uh, they really do. Um, they they don't have all of the talent yet. They haven't had years to develop that. They're still growing. They're still making mistakes. And in a real way, that, that, that was me, and, uh, and so in many respects, uh, Mike is me. I, I'm glad to say that, that my, uh, my social life was never as messy as Mike's is. Um, but, you know, when you combine all of the uh, people that I've known in the course of my life and, I, and the things that I've seen in the course of my life and certainly read about, you know, you get a sense of, um, you know, what a messy social life can be. So... Yeah, to a certain extent, uh, there are aspects of Mike and me. There are many things, by the way, that I um, uh, that I incorporated. I like to say that uh, all of my characters have a little bit of DNA from a lot of different people. So, uh, for example, um, uh, we know that Mike uh, spent a year in rabbinic school right out of high school and then dropped out. Well, that wasn't me. I never did that. Um, but I, I know a guy who did that, a lawyer who did that, and I thought, oh, that's sort of an interesting thing. He went to rabbinic school for a year and then dropped out and went to college. Um, so um, there's a lot of DNA 
from a lot of different people in Mike, but there, you know, there's no doubt that there's uh, some of me and Mike and some of Mike and me. Yeah. And the thing too, is that makes a much more, uh, one, a fellow author likes to use the term layered when it comes to a personality, because there's every person has so many of those and I see nothing wrong with pulling things from different folks. And I think that, you know, going to that kind of a school for a year, that training instills something. It's sort of it, it's experience that Mike can draw on at certain points, and I think he does at times in, in a mid-range. Absolutely, and um, you know, we don't like reading about characters who are you know who have one dimension. We want multi-dimensional characters. So whether they have multiple dimensions, or whether they're layered, or whether they have DNA from a lot of different sources, um, that makes a character more interesting. And at the same time, what we want to be sure of is that our character is believable uh, and not, not somebody who is just so unbelievable that, you know, that we can slough it off and say, well, gee, this, is not a, this isn't realistic. And uh, the harder thing for me wasn't writing Mike. The harder thing for me was writing all of the other characters uh, there's a character in the story who is the antagonist named Ernie Renati, and Ernie Renati is a uh, owner of a coal mining company called Rhino Mining Company. And uh, Rhino is uh, Renati is a, a tough guy. He's a really, really tough guy. Also, I would say based on many different uh, people that I met that I met in the course of my career, and uh, also uh, fictional in so many ways. But Renati is a complicated guy and uh, somebody that I that I made up. But it's 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 complicated writing for somebody like that because you have to be true to that personality all the way through. Uh, Nikki Kane, who's Mike's best friend, and uh, she is another complicated character that's in the story and very prominent character, co-starring <laughs> Nikki Kane, really. Um, so yes. it's. It's, it's difficult writing these characters, making sure that they have multiple layers, making sure that they're not unidimensional, making sure that they're believable. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's fun, too, I have to say. As a writer, it's fun to write these characters because you, you know, you're, you're building a personality as you're writing these yep. stories. Well, let me ask you about that. Now, you brought up uh, some of the characters I wanted to ask about, which is perfect because uh, when we're – working on stories, when it comes to characters, I've been asked about how do I come up with all of these complex characters in my stories? And it's like, they do not just arrive. Sometimes for me, like just an image arrives or maybe something I'm thinking about in terms of a person that I know or, or just an attitude, not even a person attached to it. And these are characters that I build sometimes over months and years before they ever make it to the page. And I'm interested, how do you, um, when you're building a character, let's say you want to build, you were building Mike or you want to build Mickey, or especially Ernie, uh, how do you build them? Do you build them in your mind? Do you write them out? How do you do that? It is a months-long process for the most part. Um, you do have a mental image of this character in your mind, one thing that I do and I've done with Mike, for example, and partly because I'm now um, getting ready to come out with the third book in the series, Strange Fire, um, I've had to actually develop a, a kind of a CV or a resume 
for Mike because I don't want to have him, um, you know, going to Penn State, graduating from Penn State, I should say, in book one, and then have him graduating from Dickinson College in book two. So I've got to make sure exactly. that those technical <laughs> those technical details are correct. Uh, at the same time, you know, there's sort of a, a social resume that you're building as well. So we know uh, from book one that Mike's father died when he was young, and then uh, we actually see his mother die in book one. So I can't have him putting a call into his mom in book two or in book three. You have to um, you have to keep in mind that that she's gone. Now those are those are pretty prominent uh, character attributes or, or aspects of his personality that, that would be hard to yes. forget. But there's smaller things. You know, what kind of car does he drive? You know, what kind of music does he like? Um, mm-hmm. Who's his favorite? Who's his favorite band? That kind of thing. And it's um, it is something that's built over time. But at the same time, when I'm writing a story, I get an image pretty quickly of my main character and, and the other characters. <clears throat> it's, I will say that uh, when I'm writing particularly the minor characters, they, they really may be unidimensional. I'm, I'm not really trying to build a, <clears throat> a deep uh, layered character with someone who makes a brief appearance in a story, you know, a cop who pulls you over and gives you a ticket and then drives on. <clears throat> I mean, there's just the, the one aspect of that personality. Um, but with the characters who are um, the more significant ones, you start getting an image of them. You start developing that image of them that grows over time. It may change. There are times I've written a whole story and, and I realize, wow, you know, this guy really would be much more interesting if X or Y or Z. And then I've gone back and I've had to um, make sure that his personality or her personality fit uh, the thing that, the thing that was, um, you know, that, that I decided to do later on. And Nikki Kane is a good example. Nikki Kane was a minor character in Drink to Every Beast, my first novel. And yep. it wasn't until much later that I decided to make her a major character in A Mid-Rage. And so, in, uh, uh, you know, I had to go back and I had to re- reacquaint myself with Nikki to make sure that when, um, you know, when I wrote A Mid-Rage that I didn't do anything that was totally contrary to the way that she was. And uh, all of those things that I had already published about Nikki, you know, they couldn't change. So her, her physique, you know, her personality, her, the words that she used, that kind of thing, that had to carry over into book two so that, um, you know, you would, a reader who was reading both of those books wouldn't say, wait a minute, you know, you know Nikki mm-hmm. wasn't X, she was Y. You know, you've got you've to be consistent with that. But it's over a period of time you build these characters. That's true. Uh, I find myself revisiting characters when I do a series. It's like I have to go back and look at them again. And, and then, of course, you have to take into account their growth as they get a little bit older. You know, tastes change, attitudes change, but the core of the person, like you say, with Nikki, her core has to stay the same. Only now we get to see a lot more of her, which is kind of cool. Absolutely. And um, it's really important. I think close readers or people who are reading your series, I think they're going to be upset with you if a person changes dramatically. People just don't change that much. It's funny, if you ever go back and take a look at pictures of yourself from um, grade school, you know, those grade school pictures when you, when they had a <laughs> picture day, and you take a look at yourself and you think to yourself, wow, look, there's eight-year-old me, and, um, and you start thinking to yourself, well, have I really changed that much? 
or, or you bump into an old friend, somebody you haven't seen for 20 years, and at the end of having coffee with them, they say, wow, you know, you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> and you say to yourself, in your mind, you may have changed a lot, but, you know, outwardly and to the rest of the world, you haven't changed at all. And that's, well, that's something to bear in yeah. mind as, as we're writing these characters. Well, to me, that would be distressing if someone that knew me when I was eight years old saw me again and said that because <laughs> I, I'd like to think, I, you know, because they base on what they, they base it. I, I, that happened at a college reunion some years ago. Somebody said that about me. And I thought, oh, I hope I have grown up a little bit in 25 years. You know, I'd like to think I've progressed somewhat. <laughs> Well, you know, think about it. Yes, you've grown up. Uh, we've all grown up. We've all matured. Uh, we've all gotten uh, a little wiser and hopefully a little smarter over the years. We certainly have learned a few things. But at core, the person that is, you know, deep inside you and your medulla oblongata, you know, that core of you uh, probably hasn't changed all that much. It's the other stuff uh, that's changed. And, um you know, we all we all are constantly growing, and we all are constantly changing. But I, but I think rarely do people change that dramatically. And it's the same thing mm-hmm. with a character. Um, your character should grow. And one thing that I've tried to do with Mike is to show him growing. You know, uh, the arc of the series is Mike starting out as really an inexperienced guy, making a lot of mistakes as a lawyer and a lot of mistakes as a human being in the first book. In this book trying to fix those mistakes that he's made and trying to be more careful as a lawyer, but, but not, not always being that careful and, and often making mistakes. In the next story in Strange Fire, you know, we see him now as a person who has largely uh, grown up and has largely fixed a lot of the mistakes that he was making as a young lawyer and as a young man. And so, um, uh, I mean, while, while there are, while it's the same basic personality at the same time, what, what we see is the arc of this person growing and changing. But at bottom, he's the same guy. Mm-hmm. Actually, this uh, brings my next question along where we talk about him maturing and gaining that experience. The one thing that comes across a lot in this book, and it is youth, which I remember all too well, was his frustration with his boss and with his agency and also government in general. Um, and, you know, we have, I think, I think a lot of folks who don't work in government, you know, the slowness of bureaucracy, that kind of thing. Um, I find his, his boss is like, you can tell at times he wants to mentor Mike, and at the same time he seems driven to distraction. And then at the same time you also have the much heavier higher-ups, and you have the weight of government just sitting there. And it's like you took us very well through the frustration that Mike was feeling of why aren't they listening to me? Why am I not getting any help? That kind of thing. I assume you ran into that. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, certainly for the, the years that I was with the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Resources, I saw that. And I also saw that in the, in the decades that I worked with uh, DEP over the years. And, um, and in talking with my many friends from DEP, I still get together monthly with a bunch of older DEP people, for the most part retired now. And uh, we all went through that. It's all very frustrating. And um, 
I think one of the things that people don't understand is that government is uh, a gigantic machine, and the machine is moving in a particular direction. We often hear about you know turning the Titanic, that kind of thing. But yep. it's actually kind of like that. I mean, when it's moving in a particular direction, getting it to change direction is not simple. And it, it, you know, changing course may be something that happens very slowly and over time. And um, that's certainly something that Mike sees. You know, Mike's um, boss, his mentor, is a guy named Roger Alden. And uh, Roger is um, his friend. But at the same time, Roger is about... 20 years older than Mike. He's been with DEP now for his entire career. And uh, Roger acts as a, as a kind of a buffer uh, between, you know, the, the much older powers that be and Mike who wants to do things and do things in a, in a certain mm-hmm. way. And then, then we also uh, hear about or meet, you know, the, the people way at the top of the agency, whether it's the secretary or the chief counsel, and these people are, you know, they've got policy objectives and the like, and they have a way of doing things that is very, very different than what Mike wants to do. And it's, and I, really, I don't care what administration it is. For the most part, most people are going to um, move the ship in kind of the same direction. They're going to shift it a little bit to the left or the right. We've certainly seen that over the past five years. Um, but you know, for the most people, the people, most part, the people at the heads of these agencies, the chief counsels, you know, they are going to do things the way they've largely been done, even if they're making changes. So um, Mike is frustrated by this. You know, he, he comes up against it time and again. He wants to do things a certain way. He wants to take a particular p- position. He argues and advocates for that. And uh, <laughs> in a real way, Roger um, is kind of a buffer for him. Roger protects him, and he also keeps him flying straight. Um, but you know, and Mike chafes at that. But I think Mike also Mike really uh, likes Roger very, very much, and uh, has a very strong, friendly relationship with Roger. And he really does view Roger as his as his mentor and friend. But he also realizes that Roger is uh, his boss, and he's got to he's got to listen to Roger. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the thing, too, is that as the story was going on, I talk about the gritty nature of it at times. It often feels like there are no real heroes apart from Mike. And you talked at the beginning of the show about creating the everyman. Often it it must seem Mike feels like he is he just sees everyone out for himself and or themselves. And he's like, it's me against the world. And. I think that leads in I still feeds into Mike's character of, you know, he's 28, he's got a little experience and he still feels like he's trying to fight that good fight and I think that's something that really that should resonate with just about any reader regardless of who they are. It's like that pressure and that feeling of I've got to do something or I've got to I've got to do this and I got to do it all on my own. And that does lead it makes Mike human because it also shows his flaws. Yes, and uh, actually um, you've latched on to something that I actively try to do in my stories. For the most part, uh, the stories are about people who are shades of gray. Um, you know, you take a look at this story, and there's, you know, obviously um, when you look at a character like uh, Ernie Renati, that's black and white. You know, Ernie mm-hmm. is a certain kind of person, and there's very little 
Gray and, and Ernie. But you look at some of the others, whether it's uh, uh, Feldman, who is the um, the uh, Philadelphia lawyer who represents Renati, you know, whether it is some of the other characters, they're, they're all shades of gray. And I really do try to make Mike as, um, as driven as possible. And as, um, you know, he's definitely the protagonist, definitely the good guy in the story. And um, one of the things that I do in my story is, again, I don't like beating people over the head with my perspective. So through these characters, I try to present the arguments that are made. So, for example, Sid Feldman, the, uh, the lawyer for Renati, he makes a, an argument uh, in favor of coal and coal production, and he makes a coherent and, I think, the, the traditional line regarding coal use. And Ernie Renati, at a couple of points, makes a very, very strong argument in favor of using coal and mining coal and how important that is uh, to, to the economy. And um, also their doubts about uh, climate change. I mean, that I didn't try to – I certainly didn't want to present those arguments in any kind of a cartoonish way. Those are presented in a very serious, straightforward way, the way I've heard many people present them when I've talked with uh, my colleagues and friends who have those positions. And then you have right. Mike and you have others – who take a strong position on the opposite side as to why coal is, is the worst thing that can be uh, uh, used for energy production and uh, the devastation that it, 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 it brings from the mining of coal all the way through the burning of coal, and that's brought forth from other characters in the story. So, um, you know, you hear these different voices, and these different voices are presenting their opinions. But at the same time, you know, the citizens, um, you would think, oh, the citizens, they're going to be the good guys. But the citizens are very, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of gray in, in what they're doing. Uh, you know, the, the people who are, who are favoring coal, there's a character who is the, um, the uh, district mining manager. You know, he, he's, a, he's basically a good guy, but he favors coal and he certainly promotes coal. And um, he's he's got a lot of shades of gray in him as well. So most of my characters have a lot, lots of shades of gray in, in this story in particular, I have Ernie Renati and there, there's no gray in Ernie at all. Gray is, he, he's a black and white kind of guy. And that's, that's the way Ernie sees everything. He sees black, he sees white, he sees, yeah. And that's the kind of man he is. And it is interesting too, because he made a couple of very, um, art, I'm without giving it away. He made a couple of spirited arguments Part of that from his own self-interest of this is my business. This is what I do for a living. This is how I make money. And you have the opposing and – and, and I think that was very true that I didn't hear a lot of conspiracy theorist arguments on either side about it. They were like, look, this is this. this here's what we have. Here's what we see. Um, I wanted to take this moment now. Maybe you could take us into the mining operations. Now, the term strip mining, we've heard that for, for years. Uh, you've seen it. Can you describe strip mining basically for, for folks who might not have worked in the industry or don't really know what it means? Sure. Um, when you're strip mining for coal or for any other mineral, uh, understand that the earth is like a layer cake. And uh, if you have a, a really nice layer cake with, say, five or six layers of cake and frosting, 
that's that's kind of the way the earth is underneath you. Underneath the ground, that's what you have. In many instances, it's it's flat, just like a layer cake would be. In other instances, depending upon where you're located, that can be all um, uh, you know, rolled up, and, and it's not flat at all. But let's assume flat for a second because that's the easier case. So if what you want uh, to remove is the icing you know, at the bottom of that layer cake, and, but you want to do it from the top, what you've got to start doing is peeling away the upper layers of the, uh, of the cake, or in this case, the earth. And that's what they do. They're, they'll go in, and if they're doing the job the right way, the way that's required by Pennsylvania regulations and federal regulations, you remove that top layer of soil, put that aside, and save that because that's very valuable. Then you'll remove the subsoil, and then you'll start removing the different layers of rock. So you go through, the, the mine operators will start digging down through those different layers of rock using very, very huge and uh, heavy equipment to remove that rock until they finally get down to the, um, to the coal that they want. Now, the coal that they want uh, will be anywhere from probably uh, no smaller than 18 or 24 inches, if you think about it, about just hold your hands apart about 18 inches, that may be 24 inches, two feet. That's about the smallest seam that can possibly be mined, and preferably, if you're going to mine a seam like that, it's got to be close to the surface because there's a huge expense involved for them in removing the, uh, the material above that because that material above that is actually called mine spoil, and because it's spoiled, there's nothing, there's nothing useful for them, for them on that. There may be some stone, for example, some limestone or some shale or something that can be used uh, in building or construction, but for the most part, uh, that, that isn't happening, that doesn't happen. Where, where it can happen, they will certainly use that. So you dig down, and um, the mine operator will dig down until he gets down to the coal that he wants, down to the mineral that they want, and then they will dig out the coal. The coal comes out in gigantic chunks. It's got to be uh, crushed, and there are crushing devices and crushing machines that they use to crush the coal to make it the size that they want. Most coal today uh, that's burned is burned in power plants. Uh, it used to be a time when coal was used extensively for, uh, for um, steel production and for um, home heating, and so they have different sizes of coal that, that would be mm -hmm. used, and that's all that got to be crushed down to that size. It doesn't come out of the ground in those little sizes. And, uh, and the coal is removed, and then um, theoretically, if it's being done right, you take that same mine spoil, you put it back in the, the hole, and then you put the topsoil on top of that. And that's a mining operation in about 30 seconds. Now, what are the issues with that? The issues with that are, number one, um, the coal itself has a lot of sulfur in it. The coal itself contains uh, sulfur, and that sulfur when it's exposed to air and when it's exposed to water, uh, becomes sulfuric acid. And that mm. sulfuric acid has to be dealt with. It's a problem when you're digging it out of the ground because if you leave it exposed, that sulfuric acid can destroy and will destroy and has destroyed thousands of miles of streams in Pennsylvania alone. Uh, Pennsylvania alone has thousands and thousands of miles of streams that have been destroyed uh, by the sulfuric acid and the other uh, impurities that are contained within the coal and within those that spoil. So that's a problem. When you go to burn it, that sulfur gets emitted into the atmosphere 
and uh, and uh, so and it also emits carbon because keep in mind uh, coal itself is carbon and so the carbon itself goes into the atmosphere and that's a powerful greenhouse gas and uh, mm-hmm. contributes to climate change so those are issues that have to be dealt with some of those issues can be dealt with on the ground some of those issues can be dealt with in the power plant so there's scrubbers and the like that they put in the power plant to try to keep that uh, those pollutants from getting into the air and I will say that uh, it's not 100% successful. There's a fair amount of pollutants, obviously, that get into the air. So uh, you've got to deal with that issue. You've got the issue of, you know, these these, these uh, strip mines are not just one or two acres. Typically, they are hundreds of acres. And so in those hundreds of acres, you're going to have a lot of groundwater. You could potentially have streams that go right through the um, uh, right through the strip mine itself. And those streams are have got to be moved if they're going to um, uh, be able to mine that, that area. And so the streams uh, themselves get moved. Sometimes they weren't moved at all uh, during the olden days. They just allowed the water to go right into the mine, and then they would just deal with it at the bottom of the mine and put in powerful pumps to, to uh, pump the water out to keep the, uh, the mine from filling in. So you've got all of these various issues. You've got um, you know this gigantic equipment. You've got a large area that's been dug up you've got streams that are intercepted and uh and if and if you allow um uh mine drain acid mine drainage as it's called amd if you allow that to get into the stream that's going to destroy all of the life in the stream and and, uh, prevent any uh, any uh fish or any plant life from surviving in that stream downstream uh you've got the dust you've got um, you know the emissions from the uh, the equipment itself as the as the equipment is 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 working in the um, you know in the mine and then you've got the issue of, of burning uh, the coal which has lots of issues associated with that as well it's the reason why today as we speak in Glasgow Scotland uh, there's a very large conference going on the the cop 26 conference is going on right now uh, to deal with uh, climate change so uh, climate change, which is brought on by a number of different things, including uh, burning of coal, including burning of uh, other fossil fuels, uh, climate change, as we all know, regardless of what you think about it, uh, climate change is a huge issue. Some people will say it's phony, uh, fake news, that kind of thing. But, you know, the, the vast, vast majority of scientists, people who actually study this stuff, are very, very concerned about climate change. Obviously, you know, the governments of the world are very concerned about climate change. And you've got uh, some 200 governments that are represented in Glasgow, Scotland, as we speak right now, trying to deal with the effects of climate change. And certainly one of them is coal mining. One of the, one of the impacts is coal mining. So, uh, it, you know, from the, from the time they start digging coal in a mine in Somerset County uh, till the time that the coal is finally burned, you know, you've got, potential environmental issues and uh and and this has an effect both locally in terms of the streams and in terms of the uh, local environment all the way to climate change issues which has an international global effect yeah and if i may we i I think you allude to it in the book and we've seen it as well china is using um, vast amounts of coal to continue to uh, expand their economic grip and you know their place in the world so to speak and it seems that this 
gathering in Glasgow may or may not come up with very much because it seems to be the hardest part is getting some of the bigger nations such as Russia and China to get on board. And there's optimism that they will come on board, but I'm having a hard time seeing it right at this point. I think we're, we still have a way to go with this. I'm interested to see what they do come out with, but it's like the possibility of getting larger nations, industri- heavily industrialized nations on board, it still seems a little thin right now. Well, it's not just Russia and China, but it's also the United States because yeah. um, we have a whole um, political party in this country uh, that basically uh, has taken a strong position that climate change is, is a negligible issue at best, a non-issue uh, for the most part. And, um, and we have uh, you know, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia who's taken a very strong pro-coal position. In a way, he's the 51st Republican senator when it comes to climate change and and those issues. And so um, we have the United States that also um, acts tentatively on a number of these climate change issues. And uh, so while, um, you know, yes, China and Russia and India and certain other developing countries, Brazil take, you know, uh, positions that are not uh, very strong so far as climate change are concerned and want to push off as long as they can their responsibilities. Uh, the United States also plays a huge role in that too. And, and let me say for, there's, there's a reason for that. And the reason for it is just look at Pennsylvania today, just Pennsylvania alone. I'm not even going to look at the entire United States. In Pennsylvania right. alone today, I, I have the statistics here. And you have um, today electric electric generation from coal in Pennsylvania is 17% of the electric generation. And uh, although I will say in 2010, it was 48%. And uh, uh, 17% from coal alone means that you can't just simply say, okay, we're going to just stop using coal today. Put aside all the political issues. We're going to stop using coal today. Well, where are you going to get 17% of the um, of whatever to to make up for that loss of energy. And you can't do it simply by, um, you know, energy efficiency. It's it's just simply not possible. I mean, I'm sitting in front of a computer monitor right now, and I've got my iPhone over here that I'm talking to you on. I've got lights so that I can see what I'm doing. Our house is heated. And all of that requires energy. All of that, for the most part, requires electricity. And some of it comes currently from solar. Some of it comes from wind. But the vast majority of that comes from other sources. In Pennsylvania, as I was mentioning, you know, currently we have 17% coming from coal. In Pennsylvania right now, we have 43% coming from natural gas. So Pennsylvania has become a huge producer of uh, natural gas as a result of the Marcellus Shell Formation. By the way, my book, uh, Strange Fire, coming out in February, is all about Marcellus gas drilling and fracking. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, so you take those two, you take the uh, the coal and the uh, and the uh, natural gas. That's sixty percent of our energy in Pennsylvania is coming from those uh, sources that are huge emitters of uh, greenhouse gases. So you can't just simply say, "Well, we're just going to stop using that" um, for a variety of reasons. And it's not just a political reason. It is a real a real. You can't you can't say to people, "Okay, you're only going to you're only going to get your electricity." you know, from uh, 10 o'clock in the morning till 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and the rest of the time you're going to have to sit in the dark and sit in the cold. Yeah. So there's got to be um, – you've got to quickly figure out ways 
to make up for that change in energy. Now, interestingly, you mentioned China before. China actually is is uh, working very hard on what's known as carbon capture, and other and the United States is also working very hard on carbon capture. I read uh, a while ago now, but interestingly, companies like Exxon and uh, Shell and other big energy producers are also working on carbon capture technologies. These would be technologies that would basically suck the carbon gas out of the atmosphere, whether it's at a power plant or whether it's just out of the atmosphere itself, and mm-hmm. do something with that. And the something is, is, is a variety of technologies. Bill Gates is working on that. Um, you, know, uh, you know, Elon Musk is working on that. And they have, they have a variety of, of businesses that are out there trying to work on carbon capture. But also at the same time, you have to understand that there are many people who have a, uh, a very uh, negative view of carbon capture, that it's just it's too science fiction-y, it's, it's too expensive, it's, not, you know, it's, it's undeveloped and it's not going to work is what I've seen in terms of the critiques of carbon capture. And maybe you know, it's like anything else. You know, the first automobile, you know, 100, 130 years ago, the first automobile – probably looked like something that was just a contraption that wasn't going to ever amount to much. And uh, it took a while and took development uh, to the extent that we now have self-driving automobiles. You know, so um, it's, it's like anything else. I suspect that it will become more important, but I think it's, it's got to work certainly hand-in-hand with reduction of carbon-producing fuels. Exactly. Well, I think it's, as we say, if we use the automobile as – as an example, these things take time. The question is, how much time do we have and before, before irreparable damage is done? And at the same time, there also is the naysayers, quite a few, again, as we've said, it, it has to do with sort of self-interest or also possibly just the absolute fear of something new or fear of change. What, what will this change bring? And you know, I've talked, I talk about it, I write about it, I write about the inevitability of change it's you know you can just say it's best to embrace it but another person might say i can't i can't go with that i can't understand that so it's it's a, it's a long process it's almost like a long talk process that's just going to take a long period of time well it's that but there's also the real economic question because uh, like i said you can't just simply say all right we're going to turn off the uh, electric generation from coal-fired power plants we're going to stop using right natural gas, because natural gas emits methane uh, residue, we're going to just stop using those two um, sources of energy. There's 60% of your energy in Pennsylvania alone. You can't, you can't do that, at least not, not today, um, maybe over time. But uh, there's also the economic interest. I mean, the amount of revenue that comes into Pennsylvania, both in terms of real revenue uh, for companies and employees and for all of the ancillary industries that support those businesses. I mean, that's a huge amount of revenue. And the tax dollars are huge. And uh, until we would switch over to um, uh, electric cars, uh, even if if we said, okay, from now on, all cars are going to be electric cars, which isn't going to happen. But even if that were said, it would take a long time until you saw fewer and fewer uh, gas-powered cars. So it takes a long time for these things to happen and government that's where government can play a role because government can certainly encourage uh, change and can certainly push um, private industry in one direction or another. But you know what? 
you take a look at, you know, every time I flip on the TV, I see another ad for another electric-powered automobile. Um, Cadillac yeah. now has one, and um, quite a few other companies. Uh, Mustang now has an electric version, you know, the Ford Mustang. And yeah. they're, they're not just doing it for um, PR purposes. These companies, um, if they want to do something for PR purposes, you know, they'll sponsor – you know, sponsor some charitable thing, or they'll put their name on the side of a stadium. Uh, but I think they're doing it because they believe they can make some money at it. And that's important because if they can make money at these things, uh, then they're going to do it. And so they believe that ultimately they're going to make money as people start saying, you know what, I have a choice between a gas guzzling uh, Ford Mustang or an electric Ford Mustang. I think I'm going to get the electric one. Or how about that Tesla? That's a cool car. Yes, and exactly. And more and more affordable. So, you know, I think that as, as these companies see that there's an opportunity here from an economic perspective to make some money, that's fueling a lot of the change that we're seeing today. And it's, and it's like I said, it's more than just Tesla. And you, know, you see companies that are uh, really uh, investing in, uh, in electric-powered automobiles and other electric-powered devices. Now, keep in mind, where is the electricity coming from? Is it coming from coal? Is it coming from natural gas? Is it coming from nukes? You know, where is that electricity coming from? So it's, it's very, very symbiotic, you know, very circular, and, uh, and, and there's, a, there's a lot going on there. Right. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, we've certainly looked at uh, your history in, as, as an attorney and that kind of thing, and you've shown your experience through your works. And we're seeing the next step here for Mike in, in his journey with Strange Fire. And you're, you're stepping over toward the Marcel Shale, toward natural gas. Um, I guess the next thing we have to ask is when you're – uh, what do you draw on in terms of what in terms of what you've read either earlier in your life or now that always has a hand in in whatever we we go to work on I, I when I think of the different things I've read all throughout my life they all sort of weigh on me or touch on me a little bit I try not to borrow or steal anything from anyone but you know I try to develop my own style but uh, some of um, some of the work, fiction or nonfiction, in your career. Tell us a little bit about what has influenced you and maybe helped drive you to say, all right, I'm going to start telling my own stories. Um, you know, I have two different paths. One is uh, the thriller path, and one is the literary literature path. And I, I was reading uh, literature um, probably before I started reading thrillers, and then I started reading thrillers and really, really digging them and enjoying them a lot. Um, but if you look at the uh, literary people, you know, the authors that I've admired have been people like Philip Roth, um, who is a, a writer, was a writer that really uh, kicked down some doors and made us writers realize that we had to write in a very honest way. And Roth always did that in his writing. You may not have loved some of the things that he was writing about, and I, I surely didn't, uh, but he kicked down doors and he made writers realize you had to be honest if you were going to write. I love uh, Michael Chabon. I, uh, Cormac McCarthy is, is just an excellent, excellent writer that I've really enjoyed over the years. And um, <laughs> when you read um, you know, what Chabon did, for example, in uh, the Yiddish Policeman's U Union, you know, where he creates a, like a parallel world that, that we almost can't believe existed. So, you know, my worlds, for the most part, aren't 
as as convoluted and different as Shaban's uh, was in the Yiddish Policeman's Union, um, but it tells you, it shows you as a writer how one has to uh, create a world. And and I've, I'm actually writing a book right now called Little Brother, uh, which is creating a little bit of a parallel universe uh, that exists. Uh, where in, in that story, I have, believe it or not, I have a, a local township. Uh, going to war with a uh, with the FBI, and um, in order to do that, I had to create a kind of a parallel universe that that exists. So it's not science fiction, but it's it's a parallel universe. But so writers like that have taught me how to do that kind of thing. And then in terms of the thriller writers, you know, John Grisham, of course, is you know I write these legal thrillers, so Grisham, of course, is the is the man. I mean, he's written some great legal thrillers, as has Lisa Scottolini and others have written some great books. Um, uh, you know, John, uh, I mean, just, <laughs> there, there's so many of them out there. Uh, other, right. other thriller writers that I really like are Thomas Harris. <laughs> Thomas Harris wrote um, Hannibal Lecter. You know, what, is, what a great character in The Silence of the Lambs. He actually wrote... You want to talk about going back to the well. I think he wrote about a half a dozen books in which Hannibal Lecter appears. And uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, we know uh, Silence of the Lambs, but he wrote these other books as well. And uh, we see this Hannibal Lecter character, you know, throughout these stories. And um, he, he taught me something about writing a bad man that that we kind of like in a way. I mean, we, we, we despise Hannibal Lecter, but at the same time, there's something there's – something that draws us back to him. And that's why um, yep. Thomas Harris is still writing about him to this day. And people like uh, right. James Patterson and, and, you know, and it's, it's very easy to say that, you know, somebody like Tom Clancy, while he's so popular and, and the like, how could we, um, you know, how could you focus on a guy like Clancy? But, you know, Clancy for me, as a guy who writes about scientific issues in my stories, Tom Clancy was the guy who showed us how to do that. He took, a story that could have been as dry as, you know, as ashes about nuclear submarines. And he wrote a story called The Hunt for Red October, which was a gigantic yes. bestseller and a gigantic movie. And, and, you know, if you just read it for the, the stuff about nuclear submarines, well, you would say, well, you know, this is, this is a really boring book. But he made it exciting. He made it interesting. And he did what I, I try to do in my stories, which is to make my stories exciting and interesting and teach you something at the same time. And then, you know, there's this whole environmental thriller genre, um, you know, starting with one of my favorites, The Monkey Wrench Gang by Edward Abbey, and uh, many other books that have been written that that deal with environmental issues or eco-thrillers, you know, like uh, Jaws or Jurassic Park uh, or Zoo even by James Patterson, Uh, environmental legal thrillers by James Grisham, like, um, or John Grisham, rather, Pelican Brief and The Appeal and and Grey Mountain. I mean, these are these are these are books that kind of uh, showed me the way in terms of what I could do. And um, I'll say with some modesty, I think John Grisham is just one of the outstanding authors of our day today, and a great great writer of legal thrillers. I think I know something a little bit more about environmental issues than he does. And I hope that my stories are every bit as interesting as, as Grisham's, and that my stories um, are maybe a little bit more accurate and a little bit more um, realistic so far as the environmental issues are concerned. So all of these writers, though, have taught me something along the way. All right. Well, in the time we have left, where may we find your book and where can we find you? 
you can find me at my website, joelburkant.com, and uh, that will then take you into um, you know, some of the stuff that I'm doing and links to uh, contact me and um, a link to sign up for my newsletter, which comes out about every three or four weeks or so. Uh, so that's where you can find me. And then my books are found at independent bookstores, at uh, Amazon, at uh, barnesandnoble.com. Uh, Drink to Every Beast is also available as an audio book. And actually, uh, uh, right now, I have a couple of comp copies of the audio book. And if you go into my website and send me an email, and hopefully before I run out of them, I'll be happy to send you a, uh, a complimentary audio book, an audible audio book of uh, a mid-range. So um, Drink to Every Beast has not been uh, published as a, an audio book, but a mid-range has. So uh, that's available. So that, that's where you can get my books, and that's where you can find me. All right, and uh, we will await strange fire as well. Joel, thank you so much. This hour has gone so quickly, and once again, I'm glad to have you back. Thank you so much. Tori, it's been my pleasure. I look forward to talking with you again after Strange Fire comes out, and good luck with your books as well. I know you've just had a book that just came out, and uh, I wish you much success with your book. All right. Thank you so much. Our guest today has been Joel Burkett, author of the environmental thriller Amid Rage, available from Headline Books, Amazon, and other independent retailers. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the new Brown Posey release, Call It Love. It's the sequel to Searching for Roy Buchanan. These and my other works can be found at sunburypress.com, Amazon, and as always, ask for them at your local indie bookshop. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network. Thank you.